Open your Bibles, if you would, to the text that Rob just read for us. We're going to be looking at peace coming over the entire earth, peace that you just sang about. Uh, we're going to look at that in Second Peter 3. It would also be good for you to open your own Bible, if you have it with you, to Romans chapter 8. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, um, open to 2 Peter 3, but also put a marker or something in Romans chapter 8 that will allow you to turn to it uh, when we take a look at a parallel passage to 2 Peter 3 in Romans chapter 8. Before we look into God's holy, inerrant, inspired word, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would bring our thoughts into captivity to your thoughts now as they're expressed in your word. I pray, Father, that you would keep my lips from speaking anything that is in error inadvertently. I pray, Father, that those who hear would also hear clearly what is actually being said. Father, we know that preaching is a two-way street. It involves the preacher and those to whom preaching uh, comes. Father, we pray that your spirit would be present, moving in our midst, uh, protecting the word as it goes forth. We remember the parable of um, the sower and how Satan comes and seeks to steal away the word of God when it's proclaimed. Father, the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. And so, Father, we pray that you would defeat him this morning as he would seek to work in our midst. Father, if he accomplishes what he would like to do, that is, if Satan does, he will take away a great joy from us, a great hope that belongs to believers. He will keep us confused. We pray, Father, that you would defeat him. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us again to focus on what takes place here and to experience the joy that is ours because of these promises. We pray that you would prepare us, Father, for what lies ahead for each of us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago, Pat and I were flying out of Germany. We had completed a Reformation tour with uh, the seminary that a couple of our staff members um, attended. That was Covenant Seminary. And um, we were flying back to the U.S. That morning in our hotel in Berlin, I looked at the weather report. I wish I hadn't, I think. But I saw that we were going to be flying into a, a big cold front. Um, our flight took off. It was a smooth takeoff. But somewhere over Germany, as the pilot tried to reach cruising altitude, the plane hit that front. The plane was a huge plane. It was a 747. If you know anything about them statistically, they can hold up to 470 people. Ours was packed. Uh, and they're 250 feet long, so football field, 300 feet, you know, 250 feet long, huge aircraft. So somewhere along the line, we collided with that front. The plane trembled. The body behind the wings began to flex, and I'm not going to stretch anything here, and the tail moved back and forth, sort of like what happens when a dog is excited and wags uh, its tail. The pilot would try to gain altitude, and the plane would drop like a rock. And then he would climb again, and it would drop again. 
Now, the Browns were seated all the way back in the tail, and if you know the physics of one of these planes, uh, as you get to the back, the wiggle of the tail is much more pronounced. I dug my hands into the plastic cabin wall between the cabin and the glass, or whatever the material was in the window, so that I could hold on and not be thrown back and forth uh, in my seat. Of course, I had lap belt, but that doesn't protect um, your torso from being thrown about. I thought, there can't be any atheist on this plane. I'm serious. You could feel the terror, and you could hear the terror of the people on that plane that thought it was going to come apart, and they were going to die. I thought people who, before this flight, had either rejected God or had just ignored him if they thought there was a God, had to be praying now that they would survive what was going on. I believe that most people on that plane thought that if the plane had gone down, that they would experience some sort of life everlasting. Uh, a recent poll by Pew Research uh, supports that view. Uh, in November of 2021, a survey was done, and of course, you know, to the end of making surveys, there is no end. But the people surveyed in that Pew Research survey reported that, or it was reported that 83% of the people that were surveyed, these were U.S. people, believed in some sort of life after death, and the survey showed that most of them believed that that life after death would be experienced in a heaven of some kind. But I was wondering while I was on that plane, uh, I wonder what the non-believers on that plane who were praying and hoped to be saved were thinking heaven would be like. And then I thought, I wonder what most Christians on the plane would think that heaven would be like. And I have a question for you today. Is the vision of heaven that most Christians have, as you see it, substantially different from that of non-Christians? Now, I have to tell you, after you know, many years of experience in gospel ministry and going to hundreds of funerals and hearing all kinds of things, I am not quite sure that for most Christians there is a radical difference in what they imagine the final destination of Christians to be as opposed to people who are not Christians. Now, one of the reasons is probably that I think as believers we spend a lot of time studying the gospel and how you gain eternal life, uh, the transaction that takes place when a person believes Jesus and confesses their sins and receives him. A lot of time on that, but maybe not a lot of time explaining what the final destination is for Christians, people who have accepted the forgiveness that Jesus offers, uh, that he purchased at the cross. Now, it's good that we have this emphasis because obviously it's only the gospel of Jesus that will ever get us life eternal and sins forgiven. But I don't think there's a whole lot of emphasis or thinking typically among Christians about what their final destination is. Images of heaven tend to be shaped by non-biblical um, literature, things that we read in college or whatever, TV programs and movies, and there are a lot of TV programs um, about 
um, angels in heaven and life after death. By reports of death experiences, quote-unquote, or near-death experiences, so somebody has some kind of event on an operating table and they think they've been to heaven and they come back and share those things with us. Um, we tend to shape our, our views by all this kind of stuff and then we fill in the gaps with our imagination. Now there's another shaper of our views typically, and maybe not yours here, but of people in general, of their views of heaven. And that's a belief in uniformitarianism. Now, what is that? Well, scientists define it this way, and I just read you one definition. Uniformitarianism is defined as the assumption that natural laws and processes that operate in our present-day scientific observations have always operated in the universe and will always apply. It refers to unchangeableness in the principles underpinning science, such as the constancy of cause and effect throughout space and time. Now, uniformitarianism denies that God might intervene in the processes that he has established and do something that's radically different. Now, if we are influenced by this view, it's not hard for us to assume that the final destination for Christians is not at all like what the Bible teaches. We can think that Christians are separated from their bodies at death, and of course they are, that their souls go to be with the Lord, and they do, and that at resurrection something comes out of the grave that's related to what was put in the grave, but that what comes out is spiritual and ethereal. An immaterial post-resurrection body can be imagined because we know that the dead are spirits now, and none of us has ever experienced anyone in a resurrected body. So if we're not clear on what Scripture teaches, if we're a little foggy about post-resurrection life, we can easily default to the cultural image, the TV image, if you would, of this life. Peter, in our text, challenges the assumption of uniformitarianism. In 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 4, he writes, In the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since the fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Peter says skeptics will come. They probably already had teaching that the Old Testament promises of the prophets and Jesus' teaching about what happens, about the return of Messiah, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of all people, and an earth filled with peace and prosperity and freedom from decay and death is never going to happen because everything operates according to unchanging processes that have been built into the creation. Now think about how much sense that kind of thinking makes if you're not thinking. Now, I've had the privilege of standing three or four times on the rim of the Grand Canyon. 
And if you read the guidebook, it says that it's about 6,000 feet from the rim down to the bottom of the canyon, uh, to the Colorado River. Now you stand there and you think, how much can the Colorado River excavate every year as it flows across its bed? Not much. So you can think about that, and with that knowledge, you can come up with a very old age for the canyon. Now, if you were to stand there and do that, you're in really good company, because geologists say that the canyon is six million years old. That makes a lot of sense if you're standing there and nothing ever changes. But your guess and theirs assumes, or assume, the materials through which the river flows have always been of the same hardness, that the amount of water flowing has always been relatively the same, that there have been no cataclysmic events that have changed the timeline for the development of the canyon, that when the canyon was created, it didn't already look millions of years old. I mean, think about it. If a geologist were there at creation looking out at what was created, would he say, hey, this is brand new, it's three days old? I don't think so. He'd think it was really, really old, millions or billions of years. Look, we witness constancy in our worlds. We need constancy uh, to explain our worlds. We need it to operate, to plan. We make assumptions all the time about the future that's predicated upon our experience of uniformitarianism. Peter reminds the readers that God reserves the right to intervene in the natural order of things. 2 Peter 3.5, but they, the skeptics, deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So Peter takes his readers back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Beautiful words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, uh, we are told that in this scenario, into this scenario, God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the water from the water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above. Uh, many of you read this and learned it in the KJV, the firmament. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear, and so it was. So Peter reminds us in the creation that God intervened. He miraculously created the earth that we experience. He commanded it to appear out of the water that covered everything. God separated this water, this blanket of water, into water on the earth, oceans and rivers and streams and brooks and springs, and water vapor in the atmosphere. And when he did this, this is uh, the creation of dry land. God spoke and radically changed what was. 
Now, what does the apostle do next? He reminds us of another divine intervention, one of epic proportions again. 2 Peter 3.6, he says, By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Now, you can read about that this afternoon in Genesis 6.5 through 18.19. It records how God intervened to purge the entire world of the rampant, universal wickedness that existed in Noah's lifetime. Now, the possibility of an annihilating flood was thought to be impossible by the people of Noah's day. A catastrophic event like the one Noah prophesied didn't fit what people knew about the ordered, predictable way that the universe, the world, operated. What happened in their experience? Storms came. Sometimes they were of no impact. Sometimes there were localized floods. That's the way the world operated. The rain stopped, and life would go on as it always had, until one day it didn't. Now look, we witness death in our world all the time. Regularly, the souls of people we know are separated from their bodies. We believe that the souls of those who die in faith go immediately to be with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We accept the biblical teaching of Philippians 1, 23, and hopefully you know what that says. It says that to die is gain, that to depart this life is far better. To be with Christ is far better than to stay here. That promise to each of us as believers is, and I mentioned this last time I preached, that every day after death is better than the best day in this life. We also experience a world in which everything decays. Even the sun's mass is being converted into energy. The energy is spread throughout space where it can do very little for planet Earth. One day the sun will be no more. We, we know that. We also know that all non-human living organisms die. Paul confirms our observation of the creation and decay in our world in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. If you flip to that in Romans 8, 20, Paul writes, the creation was subjected to frustration. Now that word in the original language means physical frailty. Creation is frail, he says. In 8.21, he declares that the entire created order is in bondage to decay. The word that's used there means chains. The world is in chains of dissipation, disintegration. The decay of the planet, the death of all living organisms, the separation of body and soul of humans are things that we observe all the time with our physical eye. Souls going to be with Jesus are something that we observe by the eyes of faith. We believe that's what takes place because God has said it. What we observe by our physical eye and the eyes of faith becomes uniformitarianism to us. 
And we can assume, if we're not thinking about it, if we're not well taught in the Scripture, that this is the way things will always be. Peter, writing God's revelation, records that just as God intervened in what was the natural order to create the continents out of water, just as he intervened in the natural order to destroy nearly all of civilization in the universal flood in the day of Noah, so God will intervene in the current natural order with an intervention that is of earth-shaking proportions. It's in your text, in your lap, before you look at it again. 2 Peter 3, 7, 10, 12 through 13. I'm reading parts. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Note fire. We're going to talk about that briefly in a minute. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men and women. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. How does the thief come? No warning. Suddenly. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That means in Scripture to come under God's judgment. That day will bring the destruction of the heavens and the earth by fire. And the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, that's a promise of God through Old Testament prophets and Jesus, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, a place where righteousness comes to dwell, and that's all that's in it, righteousness. Peter links the end of present uniformitarianism, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, to the day of the Lord in verse 10. When that day arrives, Peter reveals natural laws and processes that have regularly operated in the universe, massively disrupted by God's intervention. Now, what is the day of the Lord? That's a very important concept in Scripture to know. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament is linked to God's coming in judgment a time when he comes in judgment. In the New Testament, the day of judgment is linked with Jesus' return to earth. Jesus is coming back, his second advent. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, we looked at it some months ago, we're told that Christ is coming back to raise the dead, that the Christians raised will be with the Lord forever. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're taught that those raised bodies will be transformed and made suitable for everlasting life, and that at that time when Jesus returns, the people who are alive, so if Jesus comes now, we get transformed without dying, we get the resurrection bodies that the people popping out of the graveyards around us uh, will also get. The bodies are transformed and made suitable for eternal life. Now, God gave his revelation through prophets and apostles, uh, and Kevin has mentioned this many times. He did it without chapter divisions. So the information that Paul gives us about Jesus' return, where he doesn't specifically mention the day of the Lord, about the return, the resurrection of the dead, 
1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, is followed with no break at all in the original you know, scrolls by 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. There the apostle says, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates we do not need to write, for you know very well the day of the Lord, so this whole section, day of the Lord, will come <clears throat> like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. So what does the day of the Lord include across these two chapters? Well, the day of the Lord includes Jesus' return, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment. The destruction in 5.3 that comes with the day of the Lord is the punishment of wicked people uh, after or at the judgment. What Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.10-13 that Paul doesn't in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4 and 5 is what happens after the final judgment. Now, Peter and Paul don't disagree with each other. I've never found a disagreement in Scripture. All these years I've been teaching and studying. But they're writing for different purposes. So it's not Paul's purpose in 1 Thessalonians to do what Peter's doing here. Peter reveals that after the judgment, planet Earth and its atmosphere will be destroyed. 2 Peter 3, 7, again, follow as I read, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Verse 10, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now, before we forge on, let's do an aside for just a moment. While the destruction of the earth could possibly take place immediately after Jesus' return and before the judgment of believers and unbelievers, everybody that's ever lived, Peter seems to link in verse 7 the time of earth's destruction with the destruction of ungodly men and women. And that takes place after the judgment. Now, what is Peter describing? What is he describing? Is he describing the total annihilation of this planet? Is it going to be vaporized and no more and a brand new earth created? Or is the Holy Spirit-inspired language of Peter descriptive of a purging of the planet of sin, the curse, and everything corrupted by it? So, is there a new heaven that's created like earth was created the first time out of nothing? Or is there a new heaven and earth that is a total renovation, restoration to what God created in Genesis chapter 1 uh, and Genesis chapter 2? Well, the word new helps us here in 2 Peter 3.13, and it's the same one that's used in the same context in Revelation 21.1. It's used to describe, this word new is used to describe, um, that's used to describe the post-judgment earth has the meaning of new primarily in reference to quality. It's something that hasn't been worn out or show wear. 
There's another commonly used word for new in the New Testament that means new in time, something new in origin. But Peter didn't use that word here. He didn't choose to use it. The view one takes on whether we get a brand new earth or a renovated earth should never be a test of orthodoxy. So if you have a friend that believes something different than what I'm teaching, uh, they're good believers and all of that kind of stuff. Don't cut fellowship with them. But it seems that the new heaven and new earth will be the current planet purged of everything diseased by sin. That this earth is to be restored to the condition it was before the fall. Now listen to um, the words again in Romans 8, 19 through 21. The creation, he's telling people the creation, they would think what's here now, waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation, this creation was subjected to frustration, that's frailty, corruption, decay, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The verses seem to teach that the current earth, which is included in the creation that waits in expectation, will continue to exist, but will be freed from the curse it came under when Adam sinned. So what's the chronology? Christ returns. We are raised and liberated from the curse, which brings death to us. That's what the curse did. The creation is liberated also from its bondage to decay, the curse on it. We are liberated from the curse. Creation is liberated from the curse. The creation is liberated to experience a renewed glory that parallels the renewed glory that men and women who have loved Jesus and are raised to everlasting life experience. In Acts 3.21, just after Christ's ascension to the Father, Peter preaches this, Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his Holy Spirit, uh, Holy Prophets. The word restore there means to bring back to former state of harmony. Now these scriptures are just a couple of the scriptures that we could have used to show uh, what I'm telling you that, that this earth remains. Now, what about the fire and all that melding and all that kind of stuff? Fire is regularly used in Scripture as a metaphor for judgment and for purifying, for purging evil. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Our text teaches, I believe, by the use of this word, that everything in this world that has been corrupted by sin will be purified and returned to its pre-fall condition. And the heavens are mentioned. That's Bible speak for the atmosphere around the earth. The air that we breathe is not what it was when Adam and Eve first breathed it. Because of pollution, obviously. For Christians, this is a prophecy of joyous hope. Pastor Mike stressed this last week. Jesus came to lift the curse, to fix all that was broken in the world. Now, I happen to be a golf clapper, he mentioned last week. Like, I don't get crazy excited, but I get excited. And this makes me excited to think about a creation restored to what Adam and Eve first experienced. 
If you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and that's the only way you can have him as Lord and Savior, you are going to experience this world in a resurrected body that's like Jesus' resurrected body. There's a promise to that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. His body was a material body. His body was viewed by hundreds of people. It was touched by many people. He ate in front of people, ate real food. Your body will be a material body made suitable for everlasting life on a material earth. Though popular culture, the media, even our default thinking at times may imagine otherwise, our future is not ethereal people floating around in ethereal space, somewhere in space. Jesus came to redeem our souls and our bodies, to remove all of the curse. He didn't die to make us forever spirit creatures. Jesus came to save our souls and our bodies both from death. Jesus also came to restore the ravages of sin in the creation. The creation itself will be liberated, Paul says, from its bondage to decay. The Christmas carol, Jesus came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Paradise lost is going to be paradise regained. You and I and all who have received Jesus' sacrifice for sins will forever carry out the creation purposes for which humans were made. That is enjoying God in the deepest possible fellowship and relationship while using the resources, the material of an unspoiled earth for our personal enjoyment and for the honor and glory of God. That's the creation mandate of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, when it talks about subduing the earth and having a dominion. Time constraints, I wish I were teaching Sunday school, always prohibit the detailing of, of things and what this life will be like. But a Presbyterian minister, Maltby Babcock, thank you, Browns, for not calling me Maltby, concisely described in 1901 the words that provided the lyrics for the hymn, This Is My Father's World. He described very concisely what's going to happen. And this is what he said. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. And earth and heaven be one. Jesus came to destroy all the works of Satan. His victory is total when he has raised the dead judged everyone, the earth is purged of evil, and God makes earth his dwelling place. Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. When heaven and earth become one, when God takes up residence in this restored earth, heaven and earth are the same. What are the implications of that as we close? When this happens, anything that's absent from heaven 
will be absent from earth. This means, hang with me, no aging, no decay, no disease, no pain, no death. No difficult relationships, no broken relationships, no injustice, exploitation, coveting, theft, abuse, assault, murder, fear, anxiety, weeping, unknown. Think how beautiful and productive this earth can be now. Think about what it will be like this afternoon <clears throat> when greed and crime and war are no more. When the planet's resources are carefully used only for the good of the inhabitants and for the glory of Almighty God. Think of an earth and an animal kingdom after the curse that limits them is lifted. Of an earth where harmful bacteria and harmful viruses, blight, pests, and destructive weather are no more. Think of what this earth can produce. Imagine an earth with its full productivity unleashed. Such Old Testament scripture promises of productivity are going to come about through your work. Work made easier and more enjoyable because much of what, it made, what made it hard has been removed. These thoughts stagger our imagination. Heaven on earth isn't just about what's not present, it's about what is present. There is nothing in Scripture to indicate that the things we enjoy here and the humans that have created these things, carrying out the command God gave in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, that these things will not remain. The commandment was to use the resources of the planet, you know, not to keep it as an untouched park, but to use, use the resources for the enjoyment of humans. Whatever is of value to humans in this life, of knowledge, of art, of music, of literature, of science, of technology, anything here that can be purged of sin and falsehood is very likely to be a part of your final destination. Since many of those achievements, now I've been thinking about this, many of the achievements that we enjoy are built upon what came before. You would not want to use my laptop from 10 years ago. It's awful. The new one is so much better. Achievements are advanced. They're perfected. They serve us better as they are built upon and improved. Now, think of that dynamic at work when the people creating and refining and producing live forever. Time is unlimited. And there's nothing that causes decay to dust. Now, as the years roll on, and this is certainly happening for me and Pat, more and more the people that you knew and enjoyed are taken from you in death. And the loss leaves holes in your heart. My mother came to live with us at 92 years of age. She regularly said, several times a week, I miss my mother and father. I so much want to see them. When she died at 100, her husband was gone, her 12 siblings were gone, nearly all of her friends were gone, and her heart was riddled with holes. But she looked forward longingly to enjoying them again in a new heaven and a new earth, all of those who knew Christ. Your final destination 
is a place of reunion and fellowship with friends and loved ones. All of the holes that have been created by the death of believers are going to be removed. In heaven, all of God's children will know him and enjoy him intimately to the fullest of human capacity. Now that is what Revelation 22.4 teaches. There we read, they will see his face. All the people that are, are believers, they will see his face. Exodus 33.11 states, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks with a friend. To know God face to face is to know him as fully as a human ever can know him. I think Paul captures some of this in Ephesians chapter 4. Just imagine having this experience always, the ecstasy of it. Ephesians 4, 17 and 19. He prays for the Ephesians that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and established in love may have power to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of C.S. Lewis, Jill and Eustace, people are, differ on their ages, most people think they were young teens, who have experienced the joys and wonders of Narnia fear that they're going to be sent back to earth. Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure in the story, gives them great news. He says that is not going to happen, that they are in heaven. And then C.S. Lewis ends the Chronicles with these words. Just listen to this. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, all of us reading the Chronicles, this is the end of all the stories. But for them, catch this, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the title and the cover page. Your life here is the title, the cover page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That describes the forever life that Jesus came to create for you. You don't want to miss it. You know, all have sinned and come short of God's standard. I don't need to convince you that you've sinned. You need to look to the cross. You need to see a crucified Savior dying for your sins, paying hell on the cross for you. You need to see him coming out of a tomb in glorious resurrection, indicating that his work was complete. And you need, as we pray, to ask that Jesus to come into your life and to save you and tell him you want to follow him. Father, I pray that you would be with the people who have patiently worked through this with me. I pray, Father, that you would fill their hearts with joy as they look ahead to what lies in store. And I pray, Lord God, that you would work savingly in our midst if there's somebody here that doesn't know Jesus. I pray that today would be the day when they receive him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.